Hundreds missing in Mexico over the last six years. It's Thursday, February 21st. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter, in for Marco Werman. A report says Mexico's security forces are involved in hundreds of disappearances and later timber smuggling in Latin America. Yes, timber. It seems to be, after arms trafficking, human trafficking and drug trafficking, one of the most lucrative illegal industries in the world. Plus, Turkish Airlines kicks up a storm by making its flight attendants dress more modestly. Some don't see what the fuss is about. If it was like a Hooters airline and you had bikinis or something, that would be probably more controversial than this. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, in for Marco Werman, and this is The World. Losing a loved one is one thing. Having them taken away by armed men in government uniforms, never to be seen again, is quite another. That's what's happened to hundreds of Mexicans, according to a new report by Human Rights Watch. The report documents 249 cases over the past six years of Mexico's drug war under former President Felipe Calderon. It says these are known cases that the government has failed to investigate properly. But the report suggests the total number of disappearances in Mexico during that time could be much higher. We'll hear about one specific case in detail in a few minutes. But first, for an overview, I'm joined by the report's author, Nick Steinberg. Nick, uh, disappearance is kind of a terrible euphemism. You mean these people are most likely taken away and killed, correct? Well, not necessarily killed. What we know in these cases is that the people were taken against their will. Now, in many cases... Signs point to these people having been executed, but we don't know where their remains are. We don't know what happened to them or who's responsible. And and who are these victims? Are they other um, narco-traffickers? You know, the line of the previous government was that 90% of the victims are narcos taken by their narcos. Um, but what we realized in our investigation is that these victims are people without any criminal records. So this line that these were criminals taken by other criminals, is totally unsubstantiated. Well, okay, so you're saying they're basically just regular folk. Um, why then would they be taken? Well, you know, we, we've been able in some cases to piece together what the motive was for people being disappeared. Uh, for example, we have a case from a state called Nuevo Leon, and it involved four young men, actually one of whom was 17 years old, a minor, who were picked up by local police and never seen again. We know they were picked up by local police because we talked to several witnesses in this case. And in fact, the police themselves have conceded that they were in police detention for a time. Now, in our investigation of this case, working with the family, what we've been able to determine was that these guys were picked up because one of them had an argument in a bar where they had been earlier over their bill with the owner. And the owner called in a favor to an organized crime group, and the organized crime group said to the police, Go get us these guys. These are the kinds of very petty and small motives that can lead to people being disappeared by security forces working hand-in-hand with organized crime. And it's, it's a very sinister relationship because imagine if your brother or son 
or daughter has disappeared, and they're disappeared by police, where do you go for help? So is there the contention then that this is all sanctioned by the government, or um, are these acts of, of rogue groups and individuals within the security forces? to establish that there are orders uh, in cases to carry out these disappearances. But we can say two things. One is that if you never investigate the cases, even the cases where there's strong evidence that state agents have participated, the message that you send to your military and your police is, do whatever you need to do in the name of security, and you'll never be punished. And, And I would add that there are some cases where there's such a degree of coordination in the action by security forces such as a case of 20 separate disappearances that we have carried out by the Navy in two months in the north of the country, that it's impossible to imagine that these operations could be carried out without higher-ups knowing. And those cases are even more alarming because they cut against this idea that, you know, these are isolated cases, uh, that they're exceptional, and they involve a few bad actors. Nick Steinberg is the author of a Human Rights Watch report published today about the involvement of Mexico's security forces in the disappearance of hundreds of people over the past six years. We're going to hear more now about one of the cases in the report. It involves a group of hunters who disappeared in December 2010. Their families are still waiting for answers, as reporter Miles Esty found out. In this video, a young man stands amidst desert shrubs cradling a deer. There are several scenes of friends joking around on their hunting trip. Then the video cuts to footage from inside a house. You know what I mean? The video's eerie green glow resembles night vision. Different men come in and out of the frame. Automatic weapons and rifles litter the couches, and some of the men carry handguns. The camera, which once belonged to the hunters, was found in a raid of the house in the video. Officials say the men in the night vision footage, presumed kidnappers with the cartel Los Zetas, had previously killed most of the hunters before dying themselves in a shootout with the army. But, as is often the case in Mexico, questions remain. Why did they kidnap the hunters? How did they kill them? And where exactly? All of that remains murky. Two years later, in front of a computer in the city of León in Guanajuato, Jose Luis Cordero narrates a grainy security video which shows a rendezvous between police trucks and unmarked SUVs at a gas station. Jose Luis believes that his brother Ernesto Cordero and the nine other hunters were inside those trucks. One friend who later escaped and a miner who was let go identified the gas station and recounted other details of the ordeal in official court testimony which Jose Luis recounts. They were first detained by police officers who apparently were allied with organized crime, and the police said the group of hunters looked very suspicious. The survivors said the group was driven around the state and spent the night in a police station. The next day, the police allegedly handed over the hunters to the criminals in the SUVs seen on that security video. Beaten and threatened anew, the victims were driven to an abandoned patch of desert. Sensing danger, the one man managed to run away. When he last looked back, he believes he heard gunshots and later saw a fire. But he was too far away to make positive IDs. Ángeles López runs a women's rights organization in León. Because of the lack of sufficient help from local, state, or federal authorities, she's become a de facto source of support for families in this case. 
She says the lack of definitive answers from the authorities only augments the pain felt by families of Mexico's growing number of disappeared. If we have authorities whose job it is to investigate, well, they're not investigating. They're not doing their job because they're scared or incapable, or in many cases because they're complicit. No one knows anymore where organized crime ends and where the state begins, because a lot of the time they're the same. Across Mexico, these shortcomings leave family members like Jose Luis in charge of the investigation. He's the one pursuing leads and drawing information onto topographic maps that he bought. His risky detective work has alerted authorities to the remains of dozens of bodies, but not those of his brother or nephew, who was also on that hunting trip. Zacatecas state prosecutor Arturo Nale laments the fact that so much about this case remains a mystery. But he believes the hunters were mistaken for members of a rival cartel poking around in Zeta territory, picked up by a corrupt police force, and killed on that suspicion alone. And, he says, he's confident that those responsible are either dead or in jail. We have no doubt that the police officers who are in jail are those who participated in the kidnapping of the hunters from Guanajuato. And we have no doubt that the Zetas who were killed by the army were the ones who kidnapped and killed the hunters because they had the hunters' belongings. Yet, the only evidence families say they've seen is a vial of dust, supposedly the crushed-up vertebrae of Ernesto Cordero, found amidst the remains of some 30 other bodies in the desert. They say they were shown no documentation of how or where it was found, just told to accept that justice was served and move on. Ernesto's wife, Jenny Romero Manrique, says the uncertainty is the worst. It would be better to know that they were dead. That would be fine. At least we'd know they were resting, and we could rest as well. But the uncertainty of not knowing if they're alive, if they are eating, if they are cold, or if they're being forced to work like slaves somewhere, that's just torture. Jenny and family members of the other victims say that they're hopeful that under Mexico's new president, there will be an effort to really find out what happened to Mexico's disappeared. But for now, they hold out hope for any kind of definitive answer. For The World, I'm Miles Esty in Leon, Mexico. Drug trafficking in Latin America has been a huge moneymaker for decades, but a recent operation by Interpol spotlighted another growing industry, eco-trafficking. Interpol arrested nearly 200 people from 12 countries for illegal logging and seized millions of dollars worth of timber. Jeremy McDermott is with Insight Crime, a think tank that studies organized crime in the Americas. He's in Medellin, Colombia. Jeremy, drugs can be trafficked in large or small amounts and in a million different ways. How in the heck do you move thousands of truckloads of timber? With difficulty, that's for certain. It seems that China is the principal market for the exotic woods here, the valuable woods. How is stuff getting to China? Mainly through shipping. These are the containers uh, of which uh, here in Colombia, tens of thousands are leaving every day. If you multiply that through Latin America, you'll be hitting perhaps even hundreds of thousands of containers. We suspect that is the main route. It's also a popular route for the movement of drugs. We're calling this illegal timber. What, what is illegal about it? The cutting down of the trees, the selling of the trees? There's two illegal elements to it. One is that many of these trees are protected. They're in danger of extinction, and therefore the cutting of these trees is 
tightly controlled. In areas like Brazil, where there's an enormous amount of international pressure to maintain the lungs of the planet, as the Amazon basin is called, there's very strict controls and logging of any wood. The other illegal element is then the exportation or movement of this timber without it being declared. Right. This is turning into big business, isn't it? I mean, anti-logging campaigners have been murdered um, in, in places like Brazil. How much money are we talking about here? Interpol believe that the timber business is worth $30 billion worldwide. It seems to be, after arms trafficking, human trafficking, and drug trafficking, one of the most lucrative illegal industries in the world. So, Jeremy, you mentioned that the uh, global trade of wood uh, has an annual worth of something like $30 billion. But how much do these smugglers get from a single haul of wood? I mean, what, what are we talking about money-wise? What makes it worth their while? At the local level, the margin is extremely small. The people that are engaged in the illegal logging tend to be the extremely poor. The people who are making the big money are those who are delivering the wood to its uh, end market. Impunity in much of Latin America, here in Colombia, is up to 90%. The police are not going to be throwing enormous amount of judicial resources towards condemning illegal loggers when they've got an enormous backlog of murderers and drug traffickers to look at. So while it's, of course, extremely important that Interpol is shining the light on eco-trafficking, an often overlooked and increasingly lucrative crime, there is not going to be any significant inroads into this crime thanks to this latest operation. Jeremy McDermott with Insight Crime, a think tank to study organized crime in the Americas. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Coming up, some Turks are disturbed to find that the flight attendants on their national carrier may soon dress like Star Trek. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. In Turkey, TV shows, movies, and the Internet are often censored. That's nothing new. But recently, a controversy erupted over a call to censor a book on Turkey's recommended reading list for students. It's a book that has a long history of censorship in the U.S. Ashley Kleek has the story from Istanbul. Bilge Sanji says she still can't quite understand the problem. Bilge is the head editor at a publishing house in Istanbul. And last month, she says a parent complained that a book she published was inappropriate for his child. The book in question? The Turkish edition of John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. But not the whole book, just pages 63 and 64. In fact, just a couple of lines. They are talking about hanging with the girls or something like Mrs. Susie's house or something. That, that's all, all the thing. There is nothing except that. Miss Susie's house is a brothel, though the book never uses the word. Still, the local school board urged Turkey's Ministry of Education to delete the offending lines. They said it is not necessary for a child to know about the girls and this kind of houses and this kind of information to know. Yes, but maybe, but the book uh, telling us another stories about friendship and many things. 
The complaint came as a surprise, because Of Mice and Men is on the ministry's list of a hundred books every Turkish child should read. The ministry quickly dismissed the rumors that Steinbeck would be censored. But some teachers say there's a growing climate of intimidation. M.Y. teaches high school in Istanbul. He doesn't want to give his name for fear of jeopardizing his job. He says it's best if we meet in a park. M.Y. says that in 14 years of teaching, he's never gotten in trouble for recommending a book. But now, he's worried. I believe that this is only a chance, this is only a coincidence that they didn't complain about me yet. M.Y. says he gives his kids classic books. A far cry from Fifty Shades of Grey, he says. But recently, he's noticed a change in the government's recommended reading list. And I have the list with me, and let me show a few books. He says they used to be chosen on literary merit. But now, some make the list just because they have Islamic references. M.Y. worries it's part of a government effort to make Turkey's schools more traditional and conservative. He points to a speech that Prime Minister Recep Erdogan gave last year, where he said that his government aims to raise a religious youth. Asman Koja teaches literature at a religious public high school called an Imam Hatip school. These schools teach the standard curriculum, along with Islamic studies. They were restricted under Turkey's secular governments, but they've become popular again thanks to the support of the conservative governing party. Koja is a writer himself. He lists some of his favorite authors, Emil Zola, Leo Tolstoy, and John Steinbeck. He's not as worried about official censorship. And he thinks it's wrong to question a book based on one page. You judge the writer according to one page? I can't agree with this. How can you describe a whole room by looking at just a tea glass? Still, he doesn't think 15-year-olds should read about brothels. When my translator, Oner, tells him he definitely knew what a brothel was when he was 15, Koja says this generation is different. They're more innocent. They don't know about these things, and they don't need to. We should have some norms for the books we assign to 14- and 15-year-old kids. Koja says he will assign of mice and men to older teens, who can understand its content. For now, the Ministry of Education seems to agree, but it's also trying to keep tabs on what teachers assign. Recently, it established a hotline, number 147, where parents can call to complain about a teacher, a lesson, or a book. The complaints go directly to the head office, which investigates. Some teachers say it feels like a witch hunt. Even Osman Koja admits he's been investigated for assigning an unapproved book. If you want to suggest something outside this list, you're on fire. You're on a cliff. I personally suffered from it. Koja says he's now more careful about the books he recommends. As for Of Mice and Men, it's still on Turkey's reading list. And sales of the 20th century American classic have reportedly spiked in Istanbul. For The World, I'm Ashley Cleek. Another story out of Turkey caught my eye recently. It involved leaked photos of the designs for new uniforms for Turkish Airlines flight attendants. The photos have Turks talking. Some feel the new uniforms are too Star Trek. Others say that the women's uniforms, which provide cover from neck to feet, don't represent modern secular Turkey. Go to theworld.org to check out the photo for yourself. But Turkey and Turkish Airlines occupy an interesting place. The airline's hub, Istanbul, straddles Europe and the Middle East geographically and culturally. Joining us to talk about that and the new uniforms is Robert Reed of Lonely Planet. Robert, uh, first of all, we should note that Turkish Airlines hasn't confirmed 100% that these uniforms are in fact the ones that 
will be used. But what is going on? These things look like 1960s American style uh, couture, I guess. Pillbox hat, long sleeves. The guy's wearing a turtleneck. What's going on with this? It's part of uh, the reason why Turkey is such an exciting destination because it is on that borderline between Europe and Asia. In fact, 3% of the country only is in Europe. So you have a lot of different kinds of ideologies at once. And I guess that's what's come out with these uh, uniforms on the airline. Part of the complaint is that these uniforms don't look dissimilar to, say, what flight attendants wear on Emirates Airlines or, or Gulf Air from the conservative Gulf countries. Yes. I mean, I, I think that the flights that are domestic, but also going to the Middle East is a big part of Turkish Airlines. And they stopped serving alcohol because no one wanted it. That's just indicative of the people that are flying on some of the flights on Turkish Airlines. Right. And those flights to the Gulf, are those are big money routes. I wonder if you believe that contention, though, that there isn't the demand for booze on those routes. You know, if someone's thinking about this as a sign of what's happening in Turkey, this is an airline policy that appears to be made. And, to, you know, to some degree, they have the, the right to choose whether or not they're going to have uh, alcohol or not. But, you know, and still you go to Istanbul or you go to the coast or even small towns, you can get alcohol. I mean, the main Turkish beer, Ephesus, is named for Ephesus, one of the great uh, classical cities, uh, a Roman city of 250,000 people at one point, And they have a beer named for it. So it isn't like that's going away. It's kind of a funny thing because I, I used to see living in the Middle East commercials for Turkish airlines and, and their... Their advertisements were with Kevin Costner uh, and at one point with uh, Kobe Bryant using sort of very Western symbols to draw people in. That's clever, isn't it? I mean, they're obviously trying to reach the Western audience by doing that. And uh, I remember when Kobe was on there, it was all over the Internet. You know, people were forwarding this, uh, those ads and things like that. And at the same time, the uniform could, if these are, suggest more of kind of looking east a little bit. You know, I, I don't have a problem with the, the uniform at all. You know, I, I don't know that I'll, I'll buy one if, they, <laughs> if they're <laughs> offering to sell them. But, uh, you know, they look fine to me. Do you think uh, any press is good press in this situation? I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, I think it'd be a different story if the women were wearing a, a different kind of uniform than the men. For example, like if it was like a Hooters airline and you had bikinis or something, that would be probably more controversial than this, where but basically what I see in the photos, the men's and women's uniforms are largely similar. It is very Star Trek. Robert Reed, U.S. editor of Lonely Planet. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up on The World, a Chinese lute player hears a common refrain from her parents. They picked up this instrument for me. Now they joke, fortunately you played this instrument, you are the musician, because we see other than that you can't do anything. <laughs> PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Aaron Schachter, in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. In South Africa, the murder case against double amputee track star Oscar Pistorius took an unexpected turn today. Turns out the lead detective in the case is himself facing seven charges of attempted murder. They stem from an incident two years ago. Detective Hilton Bota and two other officers were pursuing a suspect who was fleeing in a minivan taxi. The van attempted to push the officers off the road, and the officers fired. Each passenger pressed charges. Bota has now been removed from the Pistorius case. South African criminologist Laurie James doesn't think that will hurt the prosecution's case. I don't actually think that the case is weaker per se. I think that a lot of the prosecution's case hinges on the forensic evidence that isn't back yet. Detective Boerter repeatedly said, I can't answer that because the evidence is not back from forensics yet. The man doesn't have the information that he needs from the forensic teams yet to answer the questions that were posed to him. I guess this is the question that we in America keep asking over and over again. Why does this bail hearing seem like a trial? Why are we getting so much information from what in the United States is is a very quick process? I must point out that usually in South Africa, it's also a very quick process. The court's primary position is no bail unless you can show me exceptional circumstances why you should be released on bail. And that is what takes time. So it's almost a mini hearing within a hearing. If not granted bail, where would Oscar Pistorius be held? Most prisoners in Pretoria area are then moved to the Pretoria Central Prison. If he were anybody other than Oscar Pistorius, he would probably be put into the awaiting trial section at Pretoria Central Prison. And my understanding is that it's not a terribly hospitable place to spend time. No, it's actually a very dangerous place. The conditions are dismal. I mean, I've seen conditions where you've literally got a 10, 12 meter room by 5 meters with 70 prisoners shoved in there onto bunk beds with a little locker sort of separating the bunk beds from each other. It's frighteningly overcrowded. There are lice, there are bugs, there are other dangerous prisoners because most of the prisoners in this section have not managed to get bail. So they're dangerous criminals. Now, we have things in America we refer to as country club prisons. Is there something like that for him? We don't have country club prisons in South Africa, firstly. And secondly, I think one of the major things that's sort of been stated all along is that he will not receive preferential treatment. Then again, you've got to walk the very fine line of what is preferential treatment because this man is a double amputee. I don't know of any other double amputee in prison and certainly not in prison for murder. So what would constitute then special treatment? It's a whole debate on its own. It'd be hard to to move around in the wheelchair in that, that small room that you mentioned. And of course, you couldn't allow him to take his prosthetics into the general population because those prosthetics on their own would be weapons. The other prisoners would take them off, off him very, very quickly and probably fashion them into some sort of weapon. South African criminologist and offender profiler Laurie James, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me.
Almost three decades after he fled Haiti, former dictator Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier is facing legal trouble in his homeland. Duvalier was driven from power in 1986. He returned after the devastating 2010 earthquake. He said he just wanted to help out. His critics wanted to try him for human rights abuses committed under his rule. But a year ago, a Haitian court ruled that he could not be tried because the statute of limitations had run out. Today, a court in Port-au-Prince held a hearing to consider whether to proceed with a new trial. Duvalier didn't show, so the judge suspended the hearing and issued a warrant to force him to attend next week. Journalist and author Amy Willens first moved to Haiti in the mid-1980s. She recalls what Haiti was like when the baby doc regime collapsed. There was a feeling in general that it was time for the end of the Duvalier dynasty. And the people of Haiti thought it was time for them to have a real election instead of all these fake elections in which the Duvaliers were re-elected president for life. They also were sick of being beaten and jailed and taxed by the Tonton Makut, which was the secret police of the Duvalier regime. There was a lot of movement in the streets. There were uprisings all over the country. And the United States government also sided with the people in feeling that Duvalier had to go, mostly because the United States was tired of having so many Haitians turning up in Florida as refugees from the Duvalier regime. And 25 years later, he was back in Haiti after the earthquake. How did the public react to that? Well, people reacted with not much interest. It was as if this whole 25-year period of history in Haiti hadn't existed. There were some of his victims who were still in Haiti or who had come back to Haiti, who demanded his arrest, and he was brought before a judge. But there was not a lot of popular unrest about his return to Haiti. So what has he been doing now for the past two years? As far as I know, he's been living up in the hills near Port-au-Prince, going to restaurants for dinner, going to various events. And is he there under house arrest? Is he just a free man at this point? What is his status? I believe he's a free man at this point with the possibility of various legal proceedings against him still in the air. Which he obviously doesn't seem to take seriously. He obviously doesn't seem to take them seriously, right? He's already been a no-show for one. Why would he take them seriously when the human rights charges against him were dismissed, the most serious charges against him? And that's what today's hearing was supposed to be about. The victims of his human rights abuses have brought an appeal against that ruling that let him off the hook. Now, you're pretty critical about the Haitian justice system. In this particular case, anyway, why is it so lax? Is somebody in cahoots with Duvalier? And and if so, to what end? Someone must be in cahoots with Duvalier. Why? Uh, The U.S. government, Hillary Clinton, that is, for the Obama administration, said it's up to the Haitian judicial system and to the Haitian people what happens with Duvalier. And she also went on further to say that what the United States really supports in Haiti is stability. We don't know what Mm -hmm. the Obama administration really thinks, but I think you would have to say that the Americans basically have washed their hands of this episode. They don't care whether Duvalier is imprisoned or not. And so once the Haitians hear that, then all sorts of manipulations can go on behind the scenes. Today is another hearing that baby Doc Duvalier was supposed to attend and didn't show up for again. Are victims and families making any kind of noise about this? Is there any advocacy to bring him to justice? Yes, there is advocacy to justice, or there wouldn't have been the opportunity for this hearing. But advocacy for justice is meaningless if justice will not go out and get the person who's subpoenaed to appear and bring them in. Fill us in again on on what the procedure today was about, what was supposed to happen today. 
I believe what was supposed to happen was that Duvalier was supposed to speak for himself on his own behalf, and his victims were also supposed to speak before the hearing on the charges they were hoping to level against his regime and him. I think that's why he doesn't want to do it. I wouldn't want to do it either if I had done what he'd done in office. I wouldn't want to give my victims the opportunity of a public forum, and I believe that's why he hasn't shown up twice in gross dereliction of judicial duty, really. That was journalist Amy Wilentz. She's been covering Haiti for almost three decades. Now, something from the Department of Cultural Stereotypes. The U.S. tire maker Titan was asked to consider investing in a money-losing Goodyear plant in France. But in a letter to a French government minister, Titan's chief said, it ain't going to happen. Maurice Taylor, known as the Grizz, wrote he'd have to be stupid to invest in France because workers there only put in three hours a day. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. A few years ago, Titan took over the farm tires division of Goodyear. Here's the Grizz making the sale on TV just after that move. So now you can put another great American-made product on your American-made wheels. Restaurants are made by the French. Firestone by the Japanese. Putting a Michelin on American farm wheels like putting a beret on a cowboy. A Firestone's like a farmer wearing a kimono. By American. Now, leaving aside the odd implication that firefighters are exclusively American, the ad suggests that Maurice the Grizz Taylor has a pretty consistent brand. The no-mess, straight-shooting, tell-it-like-it-is American businessman. Writing a letter to a French minister targeting a lazy and bloated French business culture may be for him as natural as drinking tea and talking about the weather is for an Englishman like me. So if this is just about stereotypes, why are the French sobbing into their baguettes? The French minister in question replied with a letter of his own, calling Taylor perfectly ignorant about France. He trumpeted French innovation and went on to cite the long history of American investment in France. Yep, Taylor's letter got under the French skin all right. Eric Albert writes for Le Monde and Radio France. I mean, of course, this letter is full of factual inaccuracy. French workers do not work three hours a day, even unionized one. They do work much more. As a matter of fact, actually, in average, French workers work more than German workers. Okay, no need to start something with the Germans. The point is, Albert thinks Taylor's letter has hit home because the French know something's wrong. Factories are closing one after the other. There's this Goodyear factory closing. Uh, Peugeot has announced that they were closing factories. So there is huge anxiety because we are in the middle of an economic crisis and a feeling that France is slowly being downgraded in the huge worldwide economic competition. The problem with an episode like this is that because it's so predictable, so riddled with cliché and bromide, any actual discussion of what's important goes missing have to go outside for it. The French have become lazy because the system that has been created by their government has made them lazy. This is Johan van Overtveld, the editor of Trends, a weekly news magazine in Belgium. Why should you work your ass off if you can have an unemployment benefit that is close to your last wage for at least a year and goes down over time but at a quite slow rate? Overtveld says this is the key thing for France. If you join an integrated monetary union, i.e. the Eurozone, he says you lose your own exchange rate and control over your interest rates. So to weather economic storms, you've got to find flexibility in areas you do control, like your labor market. Others might disagree, but it's a debate worth having. 
although it's not as easy as slinging blue jeans and berets back and forth across the ocean. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. So today's Geo Quiz starts with a song. The man behind this song is the leader of the country we want you to name. Prime Minister Hun Sen had the ditty written especially to celebrate his recent decree regulating fishing along the Mekong River. And the whole country is encouraged to sing along in a government karaoke campaign. Where's this taking place? Quick answer, Cambodia. Hun Sen isn't new to this sort of thing. The Cambodian premier's been issuing songs to extol his policies for decades. He even has a personal composer working for him. That's according to Sopal Ear, a Cambodian scholar and author. He's written about his own life, how he went from a pagoda boy without food or hungry to sitting in a big chair. He's written songs about Bun Rani, the prime minister's wife, Big theme is the rags-to-riches idea. Does that grab people's attention? Well, I think it uh, annoys them for the most part because they have to suffer through a daily sort of diet of, of these songs. How long has this been going on, and is it meant to be a joke or serious? There's a long history of leaders in Cambodia writing songs. Sihanouk, who just passed away, the king father of Cambodia, wrote much nicer songs, I think, uh, for Prime Minister Hun Sen. It's been happening at least since the late 1980s. Uh, They went on the radio, and then uh, when uh, karaoke came about, they started being framed as karaoke songs on television. And it's not just karaoke, is it? At one point, I understand Hun Sen hired comedians to be part of his personal bodyguard. Karaoke, comedians, uh, what, what is this all about? If you can have a troop of comedians in your bodyguard unit, given the rank of, of say, colonel, uh, which several are, they feel essentially employed by you, and they write jokes that are political and favorable to you as the leader. And do you think this has changed the nature of popular culture in Cambodia? Well, I think it has an insidious effect because people who are constantly exposed to songs that praise the leadership's wonderful actions will eventually, I'm sure, feel that maybe there's something to it. And then all around them, the schools and bridges and health care facilities are all named after Hun Sen, essentially that he is helping you get education, get health care, and on top of this, get uh, entertainment. There's internet now, there's satellite television. Do people have to listen to Hun Sen's songs or watch his videos? There are more options, but of course, it's for people who can afford them. So I think uh, in the city, uh, people will watch cable television channels. But in the countryside, you know, 80% of Cambodia's population is rural. Uh, They will rely for the most part on over-the-air radio, over-the-air television. And so they don't have much of a choice at all. You mentioned that the late king, Noradam Sihanouk, was also something of a prolific songwriter. What did he write songs about? Oh, his songs were about love. So he was a bit of a romantic. That sounds kind of sweet. It is, actually. I think a lot of people listen to his music just because it is just very nice music, wonderful music, culturally, I think, valuable music. So Paul Ear is a Cambodian scholar and author. His latest book is Aid Dependence in Cambodia. Mr. Ear, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And if you want to see Cambodia's late king crooning goodbye to his nation, yes, he really did that, 
and I challenge you not to cry. We've got the video at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. For all of you weary of winter these days, a brief trip now to the Caribbean. But not to the turquoise waters and mild breezes you might be longing for this February. Imagine instead a hot pitch black sea filled with jagged natural pipe-like outcroppings that shoot scalding fluid into the water. Not exactly a holiday. They're called black smokers, underwater vents at the bottom of the Caribbean Sea more than three miles below the surface. And they're in an area known as the Cayman Trough between Cuba and Jamaica. This week, a British research ship is bringing up photos and videos from the abyss, along with samples of some of the unique creatures that have adapted to life around the vents. The vessel's chief scientist, John Copley, says the landscape down there looks completely alien to us surface dwellers. What's creating these chimneys, hot, mineral-rich fluid gushing out of the ocean. That's important because it plays a role in influencing the chemistry of the oceans. Uh, It's part of geological processes that literally shape our world. Where we're working, right below us, volcanic rift in, in the Earth's crust, where new crust is being created, and also marine life, new species that we're only just finding and examining, which are telling us how life disperses and evolves throughout the ocean depths. Among those new species, researchers have found furry tube worms and an odd variety of shrimp. But they're very different to the shrimp you might see in the supermarket. Instead of uh, eyes on stalks, they have a a, a light-sensitive patch on their back, which they use to find their way in the very, very faint glow from these hot vents. The researchers say the newly discovered vents are the deepest ever found. We've got pictures of those weird shrimp, along with video of the black smokers and more. It's all at theworld.org. Chinese musician Wu Man plays the pipa, a Chinese lute. That line doesn't really do her justice. Wu Man's a master of the pipa, and she's made it her mission to introduce it to Western audiences. She often performs with Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble and the Kronos Quartet, among others. This year, the magazine Musical America named her Instrumentalist of 2013. Wuman's the first non-Western classical musician to receive that award. The world's Adeline Sear has more. Wuman began studying the pipa when she was nine years old. It was her parents' idea. They picked up this instrument for me. Now they joke, fortunately you played this instrument, you are the musician, because we see other than that you can't do anything. (laughs) By the age of 12, she was already studying at the renowned Beijing Conservatory, where she learned the pipa's traditional repertoire. By the time she reached her teenage years, she had memorized virtually every composition for pipa available in China. But then, in the mid-1980s, something extraordinary happened. The Chinese government began to open its doors to Western culture. Suddenly, so many things coming in to China. Symphony music, Western classical, a little bit rock and roll and pop, jazz... But as a young music student, and started thinking like, okay, wow, there's so many different styles, different music, very different language. Until that point, Wu Man had never heard anything other than Chinese music. 
and she soon caught the Music Explorer book. In 1990, she headed out to the U.S. to expand her repertoire. She experimented with new pieces, most of them not written for the people. She says just getting her hands on new music was very exciting. I can play that kind of music. I can try. So that gave me a lot of opportunity to do that. It was a turning point in Wuman's career. She has since mastered many different styles in contemporary classical music, folk, and pop. Here's a tune she composed for Electric Pipa. Composer Lou Harrison, who was a scholar of Asian music, wrote a piece for her, Concerto for Pipa and String Orchestra. And Lou called me and said, "Oh, I'm gonna write a piece, but I'm not gonna write anything like Chinese traditional style. I will write in my own way." And I said, "Lou, totally, totally. That's what I exactly I want. I want to see how." Non-Chinese composer, great composer, to write for this instrument, and then she added a personal touch to the piece to give it an Asian flavor. Do I do tremolo here, or do I do bending notes? Do I do vibrato? You know, how can I make the piece more vivid? How can I put more sauce in this piece? Right now, it's just all the linguine or or the notes. That's it. How can I put those together? You know, very tasty. Harrison approved Wu Man's take. After concert, he premiered at the Lincoln Center. He came to me and he said, "You're damn good." That's what he said to me. <laughs> This month, Wu Man has been performing this piece on tour with the Knights, a chamber orchestra based in New York. Here's sound from a rehearsal. The program also includes a suite she wrote called "Blue and Green." Blue is a meditative melody based on a Chinese folk song, and green is a riff on a little tune her son came up with when he was a small child. After several iterations, the uttered sounds became a full-blown orchestral piece. Wuman's work in contemporary music has helped the pipa come out of its exotic shell. That's thanks to her passion for any music from east or west. I really love music. If anything grabs me, anything opens my eye, I want to know it. For the world, this is Alinsi.
We have a video of Wu Man showing her chops on the peep up. It's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International